0: We are continuing through our book of Judges, but as we are working through it, it kind of occurred to me maybe this last week that there are some people, as we talk about the book of Judges, that they might be kind of like not fully engaged in this whole process of looking at the life lessons that we find throughout the book of Judges. And it might be primarily to this whole thing because there's this whole new uh, wave of thought that is flowing through our country and is ebbing its way into the church. And it's a misconception that we have where we talk about not judging. Don't judge me. Thou shalt not judge. It used to be that John 3.16 was the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so love the world, verse. But it's changed now to... Thou shalt not judge. And the problem with that whole concept or that idea is that's not really a biblical concept. It's not even really a life concept that we can step into. Let me kind of explain it to you because I'll I'll use Jesus and the Apostle Paul to help us understand what the Bible really teaches about judging. And so part of that is where Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, a lot of times what we do is we just take that verse and we think what Jesus is saying is, don't judge anybody. If you're judging people, knock it off. Live in a judgment-free world. That's not what he is saying. What he is saying is, if you are going to step into the place of where you're going to judge someone else on their actions and behavior, and the way they're living their life, you better make sure that you have your stuff together. Because the same thing, you're going to talk about that person and bring it to them. By the way, you only go and talk to the person that you're talking, that you want to have this conversation with, where it looks like it's judgment. Because if you're talking to somebody else about that person, it's not a judgment, it's gossip, and that's wrong. Okay? But you come to the person and you say, by the way, here's some things that I've noticed in your life and I think God wants me to talk to you about it. There's just, and I love you, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is because it's really important. And then you explain to them what you're seeing that is contrary to God's word. And Jesus says it's okay to do that because if you do that, understand that somebody can turn around and come back to you and go, by the way, brother, and you can't get all kind of huffy about the whole thing because Jesus is saying, You can go and judge, make these judgments with other people, but when you do, just make sure you've got your stuff together because it's going to come back to you the same way. And and what Paul said in 1 Corinthians is this, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, rivaler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So what Paul's saying is, is that you're going to make a judgment against someone. Do it within the context of the church because we're all operating off of the same Book. We're all following the same commands. We're all doing the same thing, or we should be. And sometimes what happens is a brother or a sister gets off track and they start going down a path and they start doing things that are contrary to the Word of God, contrary to living a life in Christ. Contrary to the things God's teaching us to do, our job is to make a judgment about what's going on and in love and truth, we come alongside of those people and we say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what the Bible says. Is this matching up with your life? Are you living the way God's calling you to live? And you help them. The reason you do that is you want to bring them back to the place where they're living their life according to God's word. They're living in righteousness and holiness. That's why we do it. We don't go and judge those people who don't claim to be Christ followers. We, don't, we have no business taking what God says here and placing it on an unbelieving world. And that is where the church has gotten herself in a lot of trouble. We're making judgments about people who have no clue what God is telling them to do. We're imposing upon them... The things that God says, this is what the church does, and we're imposing them on a a world out there that has no idea what Jesus is really calling them to do. We have no business making a judgment against those outside the church. And that's what happens is all of a sudden we see something going on out there, and we start saying all kinds of stuff, and yet we've got all kinds of stuff going on in here that we're not dealing with, and that's why those out there Talk about us in here as being hypocrites. So, when you start to think about the book of Judges, what we're talking about isn't necessarily coming and making judgment against others out there. You know, it's, I hear this a lot, the people who will say, well, I don't judge. And I say, why not? Everybody judges. If you don't judge, then you don't make judgments. And if you don't make judgments, then you're not then you're judging you're not judging the difference between right and wrong. And if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, then you're not being discerning. And if you're not being discerning, then it's like anything goes. You can do whatever you want to. So basically, to not judge is not discern. To not discern. And to not discern is not to know the difference between right and wrong. And to not know the difference between right and wrong makes you a relativist. Meaning that knowledge and truth and morality exist in relation to culture, society, and historical context and, and are not absolute. And to be a relativist is to have no value, value system to guide yourself. In fact, you would say... I don't judge, Would and, and that makes that, that statement a judgment. Just by saying, I don't judge, you've just made a, a judgment. And so you just have to make that judgment in your judgment. Some of you are already making a judgment right now. You're going, I don't know if I agree with what Pastor Ken is saying about judgment. So to say that we don't make judgment is, well, Ridiculous. Because we have to do that. We have to make a judgment. We have to make a judgment when we see other people. I'm making judgments about you right now. I'm looking at you, and if you've got your arms crossed and your head tilted back and your eyes closed, my judgment is is that you're really not interested and you're about ready to take a 40-minute nap. You're making a judgment of me of whether what I have to say this morning is going to be worth your while to listen to and should I apply it to my life. We make a judgment about the people that we meet. You know what they say, you don't judge a book by its cover. We do that all the time. We see somebody and our first impression is the judgment we make about those people, which usually isn't very accurate until we get to know somebody. And and so we have to make a judgment about um, what... How much money I'm going to spend on a car. What kind of a house I want to live in. What kind of education I want my kids to get when they go off to college. We make judgment and assess the situation of our kids or our spouses or our friends who are sick and ill. We're making judgment calls all the time. And so to say that we don't make judgments is to say that we live in a world and the only thing that, that rules our life are feelings and our emotions. And you, when you let your feelings and emotions guide you, you'll end up in the ditch. And so to avoid the ditch, let's keep ourselves focused on the judgment that God gives to us and the way that we do that. And... What's really great about the Word of God is it allows us to read something. It gives us a framework with which in we operate. It helps us to create a worldview so that we make proper judgments about what we see and what we hear, so that we're discerning. And so when we talk about that, it brings us to our person that we're talking about today in the book of Judges, and her name is Deborah. That's right. The one and only woman judge in the entire Bible. And often when you hear about Deborah, there's another name that goes along with it, Barak. And he is the mighty warrior. I'm going to put air quotes around that because it's, you'll see what I mean in a little bit. And so the question is, what brought Israel to the place where they needed yet another judge to come along and rescue them? So we'll pick that up in Judges 4, 1 through 3. And it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. All right, it's a cyclical thing that goes on with Israel at this point in their history. They worship and love God because they've got a godly leader who is leading them in righteousness and holiness, demonstrating to them what it means to walk with God and to obey the statutes, the precepts, the commands of Christ. That's all laid out for him. The leader leads, the people follow. The leader dies, there's a vacuum in leadership, and the people go south, they go sideways. And, and it, so then it says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sesera, who lived who lived in Harseba, I'll get this, all right, that's close. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. He oppressed the people cruelly. He wasn't a, a gracious conquering king cesora, uh, the general, was a mean cuss, and, and when he says he was cruel, it means that he was oppressing the people and putting them in a place where they felt their lives were in danger their children 's lives were in danger well they couldn 't go out on the streets. Remember, we learned last week that at this time in history, the people didn 't go down the highways they took the byways they, they took They didn't want it to be the scenic route, but they took another route to get wherever they were going because the highway was filled with these 900 chariots, iron chariots, that would run you over and kill you. Or at least they would rob you and take everything that you own. And so the people of Israel are under this this cruel um, oppression for 20 years. And then what do they do? They they cry out to God. Here's, the, here's how they got to where they were under this oppression is that after Ehud had died, they ceased to worship God. And they started to worship false idols again. And it's this this horrible thing that goes on. And the, the thing is that it wasn't like it was an accidental sin, <laughs> it was deliberate. Uh, In in the Psalms, King David, the psalmist, who wrote Psalm 51, great psalm, you need to read it, it's about his confession of his sin, but he talks about his transgressions, and transgressions are simply those sins that are premeditated and deliberate. We know what we're doing is wrong, but we're going to do it anyway because I think it's going to be a lot of fun to enter into this season of sin. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. They were walking in deliberate, flagrant, unashamed, sinful activity before God. And so God sold them into this captivity with this king, who was a horrible guy, to be under his oppression. And, and so the reason they got there is because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Meaning they were living in the, as a relative, relativistic nation. No morals. God's truth didn't apply to them on any level, and they couldn't get past living in the culture and society of of what was going on around them. They let the culture and society influence the way they lived their lives. Sound familiar? And so the Lord, in their intentional disobedience, He sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And Jabin's army general... This elite special forces guy, he was a cruel, cruel man. And he brought life to, to be miserable and difficult for all of Israel. And this cruelty lasted for 20 years. I have been here almost 16 years. That's not 20 years. And it seems like for you, maybe a lifetime that I've been here. Think about 20 years of misery and cruelty under the hand of an oppressor. We have never had to face that in this nation where we live. We've never had to deal with the oppression of somebody else. We've had to deal with the relativistic ideas of a nation who, are, who have slipped away and are no longer walking with God, and they're trying to impose their belief system on us. And when we say no, we stand for righteousness, then we get called all kinds of names, and the number one thing we're called is intolerant because we're not going to side with what culture says. And so here's where they start to cry out to God, and they're asking because their life is so miserable. For 20 years, they put up with this before they finally cry out to God and say to God, help us, because life is miserable, and you're the only one that can fix this. And as God does, He already had the help in place for the nation of Israel, and her name was Deborah. And she's an amazing woman. It says this in verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Raham and Bethel in the country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Here's, Here's the three things we know about her. We know, first of all, that she's a prophetess. What that means is that her ear is attuned to God. She is used to listening for God's voice. She's got her ear pressed to the heart of God, and she was listening for everything that God would share and say with her. He had a message that he would give to Deborah, and then she would take that message, and she would turn around, and to anybody in Israel that would give an ear to her, she would say, this is what the Lord God of Israel has to say to you. That's what a prophetess does. That's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks the voice, the words of God for other people so that their lives are transformed and follow in the footsteps that God's calling them to walk in. She is a woman of God who hears from God and then speaks for God to the people important people to have among us. The second thing we know is that she was married. She She wasn't somebody who was undesirable. She isn't somebody who just kind of did her own thing and didn't care about anybody else. She wasn't a feminist. She didn't hate men. She loved her husband. And she walked, if it wasn't a big deal for her to be married and for her to have this husband, this relationship and this marriage, they wouldn't have put it in the Bible. They might have ignored it. Now they wouldn't have done that. They would have told us she was a man-hater. But she wasn't. She understood the call of being a godly wife. And and this is the great thing, and I, I hope women of today pick this up, is that God calls women into ministry, and when He calls them into ministry, He wants them to speak His voice to other people. And, but he wants them to also know that you live with under the umbrella of what God has called us to live under and marriage is a good thing and she was married to this man and she loved him and she obeyed him according to the word of God. Women in leadership can both be a strong leader and a strong follower. Matter of fact, the only people that are really strong leaders are the people who have learned learned how to be a strong follower. You can't lead anybody if you've not followed. And until you learn to follow, your leadership is only going to be perceived by yourself as important. Nobody else is really going to follow you until you start to to follow somebody else. And the most important person for you to follow is not Pastor Ken. It's a little Jewish carpenter named Jesus. Because he has a whole lot more to teach you and to show you in life than I could ever dispel to you in a lifetime. He could do it in 10 minutes, and it's going to take me 60 years to do it. And so we have Deborah, who is this prophetess, who is um, a judge and a wife as well. And, and the, the great thing is, is that she's already got her little booth set up. Do you remember the comic strip Peanuts? And Lucy would set up her little counseling booth, and it was a nickel, right, five cents. You come and get your counseling for five cents. Deborah's nothing like Lucy. Lucy was like, well, she's just kind of a rip-off artist. Poor Charlie Brown. But the people of Israel looked at Deborah, and they came away with this conclusion that Deborah, not only was she in tune with God, but she also had uh, an ability to make good decisions and deal with matters in a biblical way. Deborah is someone who would have been able to see the value in other people and help them reach their full potential in their value. But, But being a judge, she also had the values of a theocratic nation in other words a nation that sat under the rule of God and so she had to understand what God's word said and so the five first books of the Bible she would have had those already because Moses wrote those and they were available to to all the leaders at the temple and at the synagogue, and she would have understood the rules and the laws of God, and when people came, she had a wisdom that came from God, and she would sit there, and she would listen to what people would say, and I don't think she would say, this is what uh, Dr. Deborah has to say. She would say something like, this is what God's word says according to your particular situation, and then she would impart wisdom, God's wisdom, to the people as they came and looked to her for judgment. She was a person who really understood the people around her. She had to know and understand the Word of God in order to make wise decisions. So she was wise and she was discerning. And not only was she wise and discerning, but she was also courageous in the midst of opposition and oppression. Here's what we find out, because here's what's going on. So um, God has placed this upon Deborah, and she gets a word from the Lord. And she goes to Barak, who is this military leader, and she says, The Lord has delivered Sisera into your hands. You will defeat him. He will go before you and you will have this victory over Sisera and we will start to set the captives free in Israel and we will drive out the Canaanites and it's all going to be as you lead these 10,000 men into battle. And Barak, being a courageous man himself, he says, Okay, but I won't do it unless you go with me. Because he was a man's man. Now, listen. Women weren't normally, and I don't know how many women were real warriors and went out to battle. I mean, Xena, the warrior goddess, or whoever she was on television, uh, those are make-believe. I just got to tell you, if you guys believe in that stuff, that's that's make-believe. Okay, That's fantasy. That's not real. Uh, There may have been people who were called up at time, women who were called up at time. But when you see the blood and the gore and the nastiness of of hand-to-hand combat with spears and swords and all the rest of that stuff, women were not involved in that. They were not because God knew that they should not be involved in that horrific stuff. And somehow, you know, even today, men who go to battle, right, Mitch? You see stuff, they see stuff when they're in, in uh, I, Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. They see things that mess them up and they need help. So God didn't intend for women to go into battle, especially in this close combat battle. But yet, nonetheless, Barak says, here's what he says in verse, verses 8 and 9. He says to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. <laughs> Just like I'm thinking like, here's a guy that carries a sword and a spear and a shield and he wears armor. And here's this. Gal sitting under her palm trees, doling out wisdom to people and judgment. And she's back there sipping tea, and, and she's really brilliant. And, and he comes up, this big brawny guy, and she says, you need to go fight this battle. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. But only, here's my one condition, you have to come with me. And she's, she probably went like, well, yeah, okay. And so here's what she says. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into a hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, she goes out with him to go into battle. So this tells us that this woman is fearless. She's got some courage about her because They're not just shooting Nerf dart guns at you. They're not using a Nerf sword. It's not a cardboard sword. It's not the wood swords my boys would make when they were kids. You got hit with one of those wood swords my boys would make, it would leave a bruise and it would hurt. The swords that they used in battle in these days when you got hit with them, they would chop off your arm. That's a big difference. It's a lot more painful. You're going to be spilling blood if you go into battle. And so what Deborah does is she shows great courage in this oppressive time, and she goes with this man into battle. And it's important in leadership, particularly when, when you think about the leadership of God's people, that there is courage among the leaders. Because guess what? Even in this church, the leaders of this church have to make difficult decisions. And you have to have courage in order to make the decision because you're going to second guess yourself if you don't. Did we make the right decision? Did we do the wrong thing? Especially when it comes to the whole whole process of, of like when we bought this building. That was a big deal because we're... We're looking at it as leaders and we're going, do we have the finances to do this? We're going to have to borrow money. We're going to have to get a mortgage. Can we pay the mortgage? Do we feel like this is the right thing for us to do to put our people under the burden of debt and become a slave to this mortgage that we have to pay? Because there comes a point when the lights have to stay on And the building has to be here. And if there's not enough money, and this is not a message on tithing, so relax. I'm not here going to be passing the bucket six times. But if you don't have the money to pay the mortgage and leave the lights on, then it doesn't matter about ministry stuff. And so we had to have courage to say, we believe we heard from God. We believe we heard right. We need to buy this building and we need to remodel it so that we can come in here. And look, Look what we've got. Look what God gave to us through the, the skills and the labors of many people of this church. And it was awesome. You have to have this kind of kind of courage that, that she had. And so Deborah has this courage, but her courage isn't mustered in her own strength or her own ability, her ability. Her courage flowered from her faith in God. You see, she wasn't just stepping into it, going like a blind fool into something that she has no clue about. She's going like, "I'm going into battle with Brock because Brock, you're not the guy that's going to give us the victory here. It doesn't lay upon your shoulders. It's because we have a great God who's going to go before us and he's the one that's going to secure this victory for us. And so I don't care about you because I know if God's calling us to do this, God's going to provide the victory and God's going to protect me from any danger that could come my way. So she wasn't looking at him going like, oh, you're my savior. He was going like, you know what? You need to grow up. You need to put your big boy pants on today and go fight this battle. So, she goes into this whole thing. So now we have this, this, this woman who is wise and she's discerning and she's courageous. Uh, here's the fourth thing I want you to pick up from this amazing woman. And it's found in chapter 5. And it says, Here, O kings, this is, she wrote, okay, so in chapter 4 of Judges, you have, the story of what took place with uh, Sesera and and him being killed. We'll get to that in a minute. But in chapter 5, now you have this song that comes off of Deborah's lips. This is a, a praise song. And so part of that praise song, she says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. And like King David, who came hundreds of years after her, maybe not hundreds, maybe a hundred years after her, maybe a couple hundred years after her, he was the one that wrote all of these songs we call Psalms. And and they reflect the glory and the magnitude and the majesty of God. And so we look at David and we go, this man was a worshiper. But when you look at Deborah, she was a passionate, fervent-hearted woman of worship of God. Because here is what she says. I'm going to sing praises to the God who delivered us from the hands of our enemy. You see, that's where our our worship comes from. Our worship doesn't come from the feel-good moments of life. We want to make our worship of that. We want to make our worship of these really soft and tender moments, which is good. We need to have those. But we also have worship that flows out of the battlefield of life. Our whole life is a reflection of worship. And I'm a little bit cheesed off with worship leaders from the last 20 years. Matt's back there going like, oh boy, here we go. Because worship leaders, about 20, maybe 25 years ago, they hijacked this word called worship. And what they've done with that word worship is they've made us to believe that worship is, we only worship when we open our voices and we sing or we're listening to worship music. And everything that we do as far as worship is what takes place around us singing and lifting our voices up to God. That is a small fraction of our worship. Your everyday life is to be a worship to your king. Your life becomes a living sacrifice of worship to God. So everything you do in your entire life, from Sunday to Sunday, seven days a week, is supposed to be in worship of your God, of your King, of your Savior. It's not just when you show up here and sing songs. It's not just when you're listening to the radio and you're listening to Love and all the great worship, worship songs that they have there. That is, is music that moves our hearts and we worship God. And for some people, they worship God maybe deeper when they hear the music but our entire life is supposed to reflect the worship of God. And so Deborah's life, she reflected God in everything she did. She worshiped God by the way she made her... her prophecies, and said, this is what the Lord has to say. She worshiped God by the way she made judgments and dispelled wisdom to other people. She worshiped God in the way she showed courage in the faith that she had that God was going to deliver her. Every aspect of her life was an act of worship to the God that she loved and obeyed. And those are the things that we need to pick up from Deborah. She was this great woman, this courageous woman who did all these great things, but yet in the heart of all of that, she was a worshiper of God. Let me finish off our story here because it's really important. You know, I'm one of those guys that uh, I've sit under the teaching of other pastors, and, and they're really great, and they do a great job and they tell the story, or they start to tell the story, and they get their main points of the story taken out that they want to share with everybody, and then they leave you hanging, and you don't get to know what happened at the end of the story, and so it's really frustrating. You're like, oh, it's incomplete. I like things to be tied up. So here, let's finish this. So Barak gets Deborah to go with him. They call out 10,000 soldiers from Israel they gather up in a certain location. They're going to have this battle. And Sisera, get this, Sisera, he's a prideful man. You, you don't get to be a general of 900 iron chariots and be a, a, a humble person. Pride runs through. He, we're going to go down there and, and you know, it's, we're going to slaughter these guys. We're just, going to, we're just going to kill them all. We've got chariots, they're on foot. What, they don't stand a chance. It's like, you know, a bunch of, uh, infantry guys running around trying to get away from um, an Abram's tank. You're just going to get demolished. But what, what Sisera didn't know is that the Lord God Almighty, the God of heaven and earth, went before them and he created the victory. And so the short story is that, that, that Barak and his 10,000 men and one woman, they, they slaughtered these entire 900 chariot guys. Not a single one of them got away. They all were put to the sword. They were all killed on that day. And it was a huge victory for Israel. But Sisera hit somehow in the battle. You've got guys getting, you know, kind of killed. And so they got no one to drive their chariot. It just stops. And so there's a chariot roadblock. And Sisera can't get his chariot out of there to get off the interstate and find a place to escape to. So he bails out of his chariot, and he takes off on foot, and he starts running, and he comes up to this little settlement where there's probably a few tents, maybe some homes, and he finds, and he comes running up, and he comes to the, let me get the right, uh, Heber, he comes to Heber's home, but Heber's not home, his wife is home, and so he, he goes into, Jael is the, the wife, and she says, come in here. You can come in here, my Lord. You can hide in here. It's all going to be safe. And so he comes in, and she takes a rug. This is like hiding under the bed. She takes a rug and places the rug over him to hide him, make him feel secure and safe. You're under the rug. Nobody will see you. Big lump. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, that just just goes like, oh, yeah, no, we have that in our house too, a rug with a lump underneath. That's where we sweep the dirt off the dirt floor. So he's hiding under the rug. He's about ready to fall into a a deep sleep because he's so exhausted from the battle and from everything that's going on. He's about ready to pass out, but he says, look, I'm really thirsty. Can you bring me some water? And second of all, will you keep watch at the door because if a man comes by looking for me, I'm not here. And she says, okay, here, have a drink of milk. Go to sleep. It's all going to be fine, my Lord. Don't you worry one little bit. Here's what happened. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. When she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying there fast asleep from weariness, so he died. Well, hello. You get a tent peg driven all the way through your head into the dirt and you're flopping around like a fish your dad some people just don't get it the bible wants to make sure crossed all the T's, dotted the i's this 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 jail she is she, she looks at deborah and she goes you're my hero and if i were to tell you what Jael's like she is a good wyoming girl she's tough as nails right she knows how to work a hammer. She knows how to work a tent peg. And she's going like, yeah, you just lay down there. I got a little surprise for you. No, you just don't worry about anything. That guy went into that tent and got hammered. (laughs) And she drove it and she killed him right there on the spot. She delivered Israel. She was part of God's plan. God's sovereign work to do his thing. She wasn't afraid. She knew, I mean, listen, it's going to get messy. You have to hold that peg right there. You've got this hammer, and you're going like, let this thing just fall. Bam! There was blood everywhere. And he was dead. He was dead as a doornail. And she got, guess what? The prophecy came true. A woman got the glory for the victory over Sisera because Barak was afraid. So, what does Deborah say about all of this stuff? So it's, again, back at the end of um, chapter 5, she says this. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Here's some of the things we have a hard time really understanding when we read that verse, that God's, all of God's enemies would perish. We read that and we're going like, well, that's old covenant. That's Old Testament. That's old. God doesn't want that anymore. God, God's a God of love and he wants, he wants everybody to go to heaven. God does want everybody to go to heaven. God does. God is not willing. To, in the New Testament it says, God's not willing that anyone should perish. God's, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But that doesn't mean he's going to give a free pass to anybody either. There is one way and one way only, that anybody gets to come into the kingdom of heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day from the grave to secure us a place in heaven and make us free from the sin that wants to keep us in bondage, the same kind of bondage that the Canaanites wanted to have Israel in. The freedom came when that, when that evil, wicked Sisera, the cruel man, was pegged to the ground and that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross, when he rose from the grave, he pegged sin to the ground, he pegged guilt to the ground, he pegged shame to the ground and he said, no more, I have given you freedom, now walk in the fullness of me and you will know what it means to be free indeed. That's how we find Jesus in the book of Judges. He brings freedom where there's oppression. He brings salvation where there's death. He brings life. He brings wholeness. He brings newness to all those things. And so there's a few lessons that I think are really important for us to to learn here and and from Deborah. So the first one is, is that no matter how many times we've rejected God, if we call on him from a sincere heart, he will hear our voice and forgive us of our sin. There is nothing you have ever done that is going to drive God away from loving you. There is no sin too great. There is no sin too small. God encompasses all of them. And he says, call out my name and I will forgive you of your sin and you will walk in freedom and newness. Israel had a bad habit of following while there was a leader, and then sinning when there wasn't a leader. And that's our story as well. Because what happens is we get in those moments when we say, God's word is all I want. I want to read God's word. I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey his voice. And then the relativism of this world calls out to us and says, you don't have to believe that anymore. You can do whatever you want to. You can do whatever's right in your eyes, and nobody's going to blink an eye at you, and it's all going to be okay. And all of a sudden we're going like, oh, you know what? I probably could do that. I don't think it's that big of a deal. By the way, I see other Christians who are walking down this path, so it must be all right. But yet God's word says no. God's word says don't go there. So when we do, because that's what, we, that's what happens when we do, it's, it doesn't matter what you've done. You are loved by God. He cares about you. And the reason he wants you to walk in righteousness is because he knows that righteousness is where true joy is derived from. What happens when you go into unrighteousness, you collect guilt, you collect shame, you collect consequences, and God doesn't want that for you. That's not the best. That's settling at, at, at best, second best, which is, You know, as one of my friends says, if you're not first, you're last. And so if you're settling for the second best from God, then that's last. That's the last thing you're going to get, and that's just horrible. Why not go for the best? Because here's the thing. God loves you exactly the way you are, but He loves you so much, He's not willing to leave you the way you are. He wants you to change and follow Him. That's what confession is good for. The second thing is that it... It's better to do what is right in God's eyes than to do what is right in your own eyes. That's why it's important for us to understand the values and the teachings of God. That's why it's important for us to to read God's word, to let it penetrate our hearts. Because the psalmist said, I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, God. And that's, that's, that's our cry is we want to take God's word and we want to put it in here so that when we are tempted at the moment of temptation, God's word comes flooding into our mind and helps us to a- avoid the, the pitfalls of temptation and we don't step into sin. So we need to do what's right in God's eyes and not what's right in our own eyes. And then here's the third and I think the last and really important lesson we learned from Deborah is that. The next time life oppresses you, focus on the size of your God, not on the size of your problem. Because here's what it is. It's it's tempting when life throws us a curveball that we get focused on the curveball. That's where we get our focus from. And and it's, it's easy to focus on our problems instead of on the problem solver. And when our problems increase... That just means we need a greater vision of who God is. The bigger our problems seem, the more we need to realize how big our God really is. This doesn't mean we aren't aware of the reality of our problems. It just means we are aware of the reality of who God is and how He can deal with our problems regardless of the size. Here's where I think a lot of Christ followers get messed up. It's on two levels. Number one, they're going to look at their huge problem and they're going to go like, this is so huge, I don't know what to do with it. And by doing nothing and not bringing it to God, basically what you're saying is, I don't think this is so big, I don't think God can handle it. I think it's too big for God. And so we never bring it to God. Maybe 20 years later, after the cruelty of that problem has oppressed us, for 20 years we finally... Cry out to God. But the other side of that coin is we have these little issues going on in our life and we say, that's so small, I shouldn't bother God with that. And then those little things start to build up on top of each other. And we have a a pile of these little things and it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. How many of you have ever played that game? You don't know it? Okay, you got this plastic camel and he's got these little... Holders on each side that make the saddle and and, and the camel 's split in half, and he 's got a rubber band that holds the two halves together, and you start putting straws in and once and, and it starts to stretch this camel, and you put one straw in and it separates the camel, and the whole thing falls apart and The point behind that is is that you can pile up a bunch of little sins that aren 't going to affect your seemingly affect your life for very long, but then there 's going to be that one last little sin. That is just going to make everything just fall apart and you're going to wonder, what in the world happened to my life? How did I end up in this place? Because you haven't taken the little issues of your life and brought them to God or you haven't taken the ones that are so huge and magne- mag- gargantuous and you think God can't deal with that. I don't know who can deal with it and so you live under the misery of it for the, your entire life. And God says, on both extremes of that, I can handle all of it. Because I'm bigger than any of your problems. That's what what Deborah taught Barak. God's greater than you are. God's greater than 900 chariots. And God is going to get the victory. Here's what happened. Because Sesera got pegged in the tent, got hammered, Jabin, the king, all of a sudden went like, uh uh-oh. And Israel went like, oh, look at us now. And so then they went after the rest of the Canaanites who were making life miserable for Israel in the country. And they did one of two things. They either drove them out of the country or they put them to the sword and killed them. And they were freed from the tyranny and the, the stuff that happens with, with all of that. And so um, the last thing you'll see is on verse... 31 of chapter 5. And it says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years because they had a godly leader. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with. We need to be like Deborah and we need to seek God's wisdom Discernment in our lives because there's a lot of voices and a lot of things coming at us these days that are not from God, and we need to know and be able to discern it. They sound goddish, but they are from the devil because he masquerades as an angel of light. That's number one. We need discernment, we need to be able to discern not only right from wrong, but morally and ethically what we need to be doing because those. Those barriers have shifted in our country. We need to be passionate about uh, God's justice for our lives and for our country. We need to grow our courage in the midst of oppressive times that comes from faith in God. And the fourth thing is, is that we need to have a fervent heart of a worshiper like Deborah who made her entire life a worship to God. Amen? Father, we thank you this morning that you love us even though we don't do the right things. Even though we mess up, you still love us and you want to help us grow to become more like Christ. We thank you for the story of Deborah. We thank you for raising up such a mighty woman who did such great things for your kingdom that it inspires both men and women today to follow in her footsteps, to have a, a, a wise and discerning heart, to have a passion for judgment, to be a person who desires to follow you even in the face of all obstacles and that we would find courage in our faith in you because we know you are greater than any of our problems. And so this morning, we just simply ask that you would bring the reality of these truths home in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I just wanna remind you this morning. That if you need prayer or you want to come and pray, that the front is open for you. There there are things that we talked about this morning. There are probably things going on in your life. There are issues that you're facing. It might be relational. It might be financial. It might be marital. It might be with your children. It might be with your job. I don't know what it is that you're facing. But you might be looking at those things and going, it's too big. And I want to remind you that your God is bigger than your issue. Come to the front. Deal with your issues. Turn it over to God and trust Him for the results.